turn back to Judges, chapter 17. Judges 17. Wow, what an exodus. Brother Jeremy, you're in trouble today, man. <laughs> A lot of kids going back. That is great. We love to see a church full of young people. Amen? That is great. And what's left is you all. So, that's good too. That is good too. Judges chapter 17. When we look at stories in the Bible that have to do with idols and idol worship, uh, it seems like we do not relate in our day and age because after all, we would say in our modern day, we don't have idols anymore today? Well, in a museum in Egypt, there's a monument to the scarab beetle, which is a type of dung beetle that are, was worshipped by millions uh, long ago, still worshipped by some, uh, a dung beetle. The Philistines actually worshipped flies. There are still Hindus today that will not swat a fly because it might be an ancestor of theirs uh, who's been turned into a fly to pay for their wrongs. What worse way to pay for your wrongs than to be turned into a fly? Today, you uh, also find there are about 330 million gods of the Hindus. That's eight gods per person, per every Hindu. In Thailand, there's 20,000 Buddhist temples. And in one of them is, this, uh, is a uh, tooth supposedly saved from Buddha's funeral. In China, uh, a Buddhist stat uh, statue fell and on a man and, his, and killed him. His family sued the statue because it's a god. They won and the statue was beheaded. Honest to statue. I, I know it's hard to believe, but that's what happened. The Roman Catholic Church has its relics that it serves like idols in the church. Idolatry, friend, is rampant in the world today. Now the only difference between a tribesman in the bush that worships a rock and a professor that attributes the wonders of the natural world to evolution is one of degrees. The professor has a degree, the tribesman does not. But really, other than that, there's no real difference. Uh, idolatry is still idolatry. Someone has said that the god of the last half of the 20th century, and of course the 21st as well, is materialism. And we've talked about that before. This is not a message on materialism today, but I do agree that I can't think of another generation that ever had more stuff than ours do today. Not only that, but we feel entitled to the stuff. I mean, if I take out a loan to go to college, I want you to pay for it. Amen? That's the type of generation we live in today. People sacrifice their family time and work 90 hours a week to buy a mansion that they're never in because they're always at work trying to pay for it. Always going after more stuff. We gotta have more things, the God of materialism. Now the es essence of idolatry is the desire to get. It is, a man sets up an idol and worships it because he wants to get something out of his God. I wanna look at a story today in the Bible that shows us the absolute futility of idolatry. I think it'll help us. We're again in the book of Judges. Now, in some ways, last week we talked about Samson, and in some ways, Samson was kind of the end of the Judges story. He was the last judge uh, that, that uh, judged Israel for 20 years, and of course, he kind of left an unfinished job there. <coughs> and so, but his death appears to be the end, but it's not the, it, chronologically anyway. 
But there's five more chapters that come after his story. Chapters 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. And those chapters are not necessarily in chronological order. Uh, they're more like an appendix to the book of Judges. Most, most uh, theologians, as they read the book of Judges, agree that it's not necessarily happened after Samson. What this is doing is it shows us the, the, uh, the, the, the temperature of the people, you could say. You remember the book of Judges all throughout says that people did that which was right in their own eyes. And while they were doing what was right in their eyes, in God's eyes it was wicked. Because over and over and over you see, says the people again did wicked in the eyes of the Lord. They were exceedingly wicked. And so these chapters give us kind of a ground view of what, a ground level view of what life was like in Israel during these times of the judges. There are two episodes. One is found in chapter 17 and 18. One is found in chapter 19 and 20 that show us the degradation of the land. Now, prior to this, uh, this part of the book, we see judges who have come in and, and been sent by God to rescue Israel. Here we're giving two case studies that shows us the kind of spiritual condition that he rescued them from. Now, these final five chapters barely mention the Lord because it's showing us what life is without the Lord. It's showing us what life is when everybody does right in their own eyes. And this view of humanity without God is so depressing that it is rarely preached on. You know me. That makes me want to go after it. Amen? So that's what we're going to do. Now, it's incredibly interesting, the contrast between these episodes. They're entirely different in scope, but not in valuation. Uh, and I'll explain that by this, simply this. The story that we look at today is all about religion, trying to worship God in your own way. The second episode, chapter 19 and chapter 20, I don't know if you've ever read it, it's one of the most graphic scenes of wickedness in your entire Bible. It's worse than what we see in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's horrible. Uh, the, the story that we see in chapter 19 and chapter 20. It, it's a level of wickedness that will turn your stomach. Yet both of these are equally tragic. In the grand scheme of things, neither one is better. Here you have a religious guy, here you have horrible wickedness, and neither one is better in the eyes of God. One is shockingly evil, one is culturally tolerable, neither is acceptable in God's eyes. Now there's some lessons to be learned in this story that we're going to look at today, chapter 17 and 18. It revolves around a man named Micah. He was from the hill country of Ephraim. Let's start reading chapter 17, verse 1. We're going to read chapter 17. We're also going to be looking at verse, uh, chapter 18, but you just kind of have to follow along as we go. And there was a man of Mount Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said unto his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from thee, about which thou cursest and spakest of also in mine ears, Behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my son. Nice mother, isn't it? I just stole all this money from you. Bless, bless you, son. And when he had restored the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord from my hand for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will restore it unto thee. Yet he restored the money unto his mother, and his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the founder who made thereof a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. 
And the man Micah made a house of gods and made an ephod and a teraphim and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. I like how they insert that there because that's exactly what Micah's doing. And there was a young man out of Bethlehem, Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed out of the city from Bethlehem, Judah, to sojourn where he could find a place. And when he came to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. And Micah said unto him, Whence comest thou? And he said unto him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem, Judah, and I will go to sojourn where I may find a place. He was backpacking across Europe, is what he was doing there. And Micah said unto him, Dwell with me and be unto me a father and a priest. I will give thee ten shekels of silver by the year and a suit of apparel and thy victuals. So the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man was with him as one of his sons. And Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest, was in the house of Micah, then said, Micah, now I know that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite as my priest. I preach today on rent-a-priest. Rent-a-priest. Father, I thank you for this day, this passage. I pray you'd help us to learn something in Jesus' name. Amen. Micah was not what you call a good son. read this story about little Johnny who was making faces at his sister, making her cry. And his mom wanted to take that kind route where she would uh, try to talk to him about his crime. It's what parents do these days. Uh, parents don't treat children the way they did when I was being raised, anyway. And many of you, my parents whipped me when I was naughty. They even killed me one time. I mean, it was a different time, you know, when I was being raised and what was today. Anyway, this mom wanted to instruct little Johnny, so she said, Johnny, when I was a child, I was told that if I did what you're doing and made these hideous, awful, ugly faces to others, if I made an ugly face, it would freeze that way. And I would stay like that. Johnny said, well, Mom, you can't say you weren't warned. And of course, of course, that's when Johnny got his whipping. Amen. Micah, Micah was not a nice boy. He stole 1,100 shekels of silver from his own mother. Now, we don't know how much that is, but that's 30 pounds of silver. And we can just get an idea because in verse 10, it tells us that a uh, 10 shekels of silver were an annual salary. So 1,100 shekels of silver, we know, was a lot of money. But then when he took it from her, he heard her call down a curse on the robber. This is interesting to me. We don't know what that curse was. Uh, may the chocolate chips in your cookies always turn out to be raisins. You know, there's all kind of curses you can have. May both sides of your pillow be warm. May every parking spot that you see from a distance actually contain a motorcycle. I like that one. We don't, we don't know what the curse was, but whatever it was, when he heard her call down a curse on the robber, he got a little filled with fear and he returned the money to her. So Micah was never a... Not a, not a good person at all, but he wasn't really that evil either. If he were thoroughly evil, he wouldn't have given the money back. But of course, if he was a good man, he'd have never taken it in the first place. And so, here's Micah. And it's interesting, he seems to be a person of very weak character, with no principles. He is hollow. He's a man without much substance within him. And in response to him bringing the money back, Micah's mother reverses the curse, and now turns it into a blessing for him. Blessed art thou. Uh, it is, really, she's a very forgiving person, number one, but she restores this without asking him 
or expecting real repentance from him. Because he is not repentant. There is for Micah no deterrence for this behavior in the future. There is no challenge for him to examine his heart and find out why he would do such a thing. There is no humble acceptance for the need of a heart change. Now it's true that an overly condemning parent can do harm to a child. But an overly permissive parent can do the same thing. And we see that here with Micah's mother, not expecting him to do right. Uh, there is an image problem. Micah's mother is right here in appealing to the Lord's name as the source of blessing. This family does not worship Dagon or any false god. She seems to worship the true God. Uh, in fact, uh, in word at least, that's what they're doing. But what happens next is a big problem. With the returned money, she says she gives it to the Lord for her son to make a graven image. That's incompatible, friends. You can't do both. You can't give it to the Lord to make a graven image. She gives 200 shekels to the silversmith to make a graven image and a molten image. This is a blatant disregard for the second commandment that says simply this, Thou shalt make unto thee no, no graven images. And so God says no one should ever make an image uh, to worship. Hey, not even an image of Him. And there's an important reason for this. Any graven image of God could reveal part of His nature, but would automatically conceal other parts of His nature. For example, Aaron and the children of Israel made a golden calf to worship, uh, essentially, ostensibly to worship God in a different way. Now we know that never works and it didn't for them. Uh, but they thought that was another way to worship God. But while the calf could symbolize the power of God, it could not show his righteousness or his love. Let, let me go a step further. What if you were today to draw a picture of what you think God is or what he looks like uh, to worship that? Would he be smiling? Would he be stern? Either way, there's no way you can encapsulate the whole person of who God is. And so he says, don't ever make an image. Don't ever worship a picture or a likeness of me. We're to worship the true God, the Bible says, in spirit and in truth. In no way could we express the full range of God's glory. Worshiping God with images reveals a spirit that does not want to accept God for who He is. Rather, it picks and chooses attributes in order to create a God who is palatable to us. We basically make and shape a God that will fit who we think we like or what we accept. The real problem in worship by image is the desire to shape and revise God to our way of thinking. In other words, it's a refusal to let God be Himself in our lives. We want to create who we think He is. Now, we filter out the things about God that our heart does not want to accept. How often have you heard somebody say something like this? Well, I know the Bible talks about hell, but I just don't believe in a God that would send somebody there. Uh, just a note uh, inserted here. God doesn't send anyone there. God creates a way for every one of us to be saved. He sent His Son. He made it free. He called it a gift of salvation. If you choose to reject that gift, you're sending yourself there. God doesn't send anybody there. But that's a side note. But we hear statements like that. Thomas Jefferson great president, a great man, a great patriot, but one of the things he did is he created what they call the Jefferson Bible. He went through his Bible. He did not believe, he figured himself a man of science. 
So he did not believe in miracles and such things. And so he took, to, took a literally a razor knife, an exacto knife type, and he cut out the passages of the Bible that did not fit what he felt was plausible. You can't do that, friend. You can't cut parts out of the Bible. If the Bible is the Word of God, the Bible is the Word of God. And so we can't uh, create a God that fits us. How many of you ever heard a statement like this? I like to think of God as a God of love, not of judgment. Now, I'm not trying to be mean at all here, friend, but who cares what you think and who cares what I think when it comes to the Word of God? The Word of God is the Word of God. We can't be starting to mess with it. Now, this is worshiping God through a work of our own hands. And by the way, we can do this without fashioning a physical image. Whenever we go against a command of God and apply our own rules to what we think is right and wrong, that is a form of idolatry. When we ignore the parts of God that we don't like, and then we really aren't worshiping Him, we're worshiping what we think is a more comfortable God, but it is a non-existence one. Um, I have in my hands a King James Bible. I don't know if you've heard of this. If you haven't, good on you. Uh, they have now what they call the Queen James Bible. How many of you ever heard of the Queen James Bible? Good. I'm glad that nobody has. I, some of these stuff comes across my desk. They have removed, it's basically the King James Bible, removing the seven times in the Bible that it talks against homosexuality. They just take that part out and they call it the Queen James Bible. Well, a Bible that has been messed with and changed is not the full, complete Word of God. It is not up to us to start changing things and trying to make God fit into what we think He ought to be. That's idolatry. This is what Mike is doing. He has a homemade religion. Micah takes the idols and puts them in a shrine in his house. Now, I like this, this uh, definition of idolatry. Worshipping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Let me say that again. Worshipping anything that ought to be used, or using anything that ought to be worshipped. That is idolatry. And here you have a man, made in the image of God, making a God in the image of man. And it is reversed, it is wrong, it is wicked, and God condemns it. Micah is saying, hey, I don't have to go to the tabernacle uh, that God has set up, I can do so right here. And he sets one up in his home. Micah is the original to live stream a church service, essentially. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm grateful for all those that tune in to our live stream if they are sick on vacation or they're far away or some other reason prevents them from being here. But we, and I've struggled with this a lot, we do not have a live stream to replace being in church. We do not ever want, and it horrifies me to think that somebody would use the excuse of a live stream to stay home in their house when they ought to be in the house of God. That is not the purpose of us live streaming a service. Remember what Hebrews 10.25 says. Not neglecting the streaming service of your local church as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. It's not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is what it actually says. I know what some of you are thinking. I don't know. I, think, I don't think I remember seeing that in my Bible. Well, you didn't. It's not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Church is important. You will not grow without it. Your relationship with God will not be complete without the local church. It is important. But you say, preacher, there's too many hypocrites in the church. You ever heard that before? i got two answers to that. Number one, would you determine the value of a diamond by looking at a counterfeit? Don't 
don't judge the value of a Christian or a church by looking at a counterfeit. Amen? And my second response to too many hypocrites in the church, there's always room for one more, we'll save a seat for you. Amen? The real problem, the real problem is today, people look at church as supplemental instead of foundational. Church is not a supplement to your diet. It is foundational, it is absolutely crucial to your spiritual diet. One man sitting in church was increasingly upset during the message. On the way out, he stopped to uh, talk to the pastor, and he was upset. He says, you know, uh, you really got to do something about your preaching. He says, every single time I'm here, you preach on the same topic. The pastor said, you're only here on Easter. All right, it's going to happen, okay? We need to go to church a little more often to get a full diet, amen. Church is important. Your growth depends on it. See, God had set up a central tabernacle. Uh, it, It was in Shiloh at this time. He had set something up for people to go to. This is where the presence of God was at. This is a place where sacrifices were made. This is where worship was conducted. This is where the high priest's ephod was. And ephod is a, the clothing that, uh, that the high priest wears. And God answered the people's questions. But Micah says, ah, I don't need all that. I'll set up my own home church and I'll worship at my own convenience. And now he goes a step further. He makes his own son the priest. Now, this was also against the law of Moses. Only the tribe of Levi were to be priests. You could only be priests if you were one of the Levites. It was in your genes. Okay, stay with me here, alright? Just a couple of you are picking this up. we got to stay, stay on track here, alright? I'm sorry, I couldn't help that one. Micah shapes a God who is convenient to him. And it is, is a tragic thing he's doing here. He follows the laws he likes, He ignores the laws he doesn't. This is what it looks like for a society or a people to follow what they think is right in their own eyes. Just continuing to do what they think is good. It does not mean a conscious rejection of God, oh no. It does not mean no longer calling on God. It does not mean ceasing religious activity. In fact, in verse 17, religious activity is increasing in here. I want to remind us that in verse 6 it says, in those days there was no king in Israel Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. This was religion on Israel's terms. This was each person did according to their own personal preferences. It is not a religion that is about God and His truth. It is about me and my ideas. It is a religion which seeks to remake God into an image that we're comfortable with. And friend, does that not describe America today? We can look at Micah. We can laugh at the idea, the absurd idea of making an idol with your hands. You are stronger than what you make with your hands. And then putting it on a shelf and then worshiping what you made with your own hands. That's absurd. And yet, friend, even among Christians today, uh, we, we have idolatries rampant. We live the way that we want. We're not faithful to church and witness and giving and, and, and all those things. There's no fear of God. There's no recognition of the fact that we are His and how we live matters today. Be ye holy, even as I am holy. And so we have, we have, we probably all, every one of us, deal with idolatry to some extent in our lives. And we have to address that and look at that. Now, now that Micah has built his own tabernacle, we're reduced to, or introduced to another man. He's not named here, but his name is Jonathan. He's named in chapter 18, verse 30. So Jonathan, as I mentioned, is backpacking and trying to find himself. And he stops at Micah's house and they start to chat. Micah finds out this is a Levite. Ha! He thinks he made his son a Levite. 
a priest illegally because only Levites were supposed to be priests. And so he says, hey, I know. Why don't you stay here and be my priest? You can, he said, I'll give you a room. I'll give you a board. I'll give you a salary. I'll give you supplies. A Levite said, what a value, what a deal. I will stay and do exactly that. And that's what he chose to do. Now he had a job. He was a rent-a-priest. Micah pulls out Donald Trump and says to his son, you're fired, and he has rented himself a real priest, he says. Now, look at what he says in verse 13. Now I know the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite as my priest. What a, what a sorry situation when you are hiring your so-called spiritual leadership. The Bible talks in Acts chapter 20, calls on pastors to shepherd the flock of God. In John chapter 10, Jesus contrasts the good shepherd with a hireling, which literally means one that is hired, rent a priest. This is what Micah had. This is what he did. He did not have a shepherd. He did not have a pastor. He did not have a spiritual leader. He had a hireling. He had a rent a priest. This is a tragic mistake, and yet we see it all over even today. When I was, uh, I am not here today at Bible Baptist Church only because a group of people hired me to be here. I'm here because I truly felt, my wife and I as we prayed about it, that this is where God wanted us to be. On August chapter, chapter, August 31st, so used to the Bible, August 31st, 2014, the members of Bible Baptist Church met right here in this room and they voted on whether or not to call me as pastor of Bible Baptist Church. Now the question essentially that is being considered when a Bible-believing Baptist church votes on a pastor is not, are we going to hire this man? The question to be considered, is he the one that God has for us? Does God want him to be here? So a yes vote is in agreement to this is what God's will is. A no vote is a disagreement to what this uh, will of God is. So... You see, what Micah did here is symptomatic of so many people today. Rather than putting themselves under the authority of a shepherd, it's much easier and much more palatable to hire your own hireling, which is what he did, rent a priest. This completely changes the dynamic of the spiritual relationship with you and your spiritual leader, or uh, we could call it even the local church today. Uh, churches today are filled with deacons and members that feel it is their job to keep the pastor in check rather than getting behind the man of God and promoting the vision that God gives him. Now, I'm grateful that we have men in our church like this. We don't have, we don't have a board. We're not board-run church, but we, uh, we have good godly deacons in our church today who share the pastor's vision. They promote unity, and uh, it's, a, tr it's a, a pleasure to work with them. Now, you, do we always agree? No, not always. They're wrong all the time. Um, just joking. Seriously, though, we have cultivated a relationship with open dialogue. We can talk out these disagreements with mutual respect and uh, move forward from there. Now, you, you might say, Pastor, it sounds like you're talking about a dictatorship. Not at all. But the Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now, if a, doc if a pastor steps out of line doctrinally or morally, he needs to be dealt with. But he's to be a pastor, not a hireling. He's to be a leader. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 2, feed the flock of God which is among you by taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. 
the pastor is to take oversight. The word means literally to care for. It is a servant leader position that he has. Not for filthy lucre. Not for money, in other words. And this is exactly what this rent-a-priest was doing. And that's what rent-a-priests, hirelings, rent-a-preachers still do today, following the money rather than following the Lord's will. Now the Levite agrees to stay with him as his priest. Micah's shrine, at least outwardly, he thinks, is doing a lot better now because now he's got the uh, he's got kind of a symbol of authenticity. He has a Levite as a priest, and he set up this whole shrine himself. Yet he is rejecting the principle of that law that worship must be done according to the word of God, not human ideas. Read verse number thirteen again with me. Then said Micah, Now I know, now know I that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite to my priest. Here's a whole idea of what Micah's trying to do. The purpose of all his religious efforts is so that he can get, don't miss this now, so that he can get God to do what he wants. Now God will do what I want. You see, the goal of true faith is to put God in the throne of our hearts so that we can do what He wants. Not so that He can do what we want. Religion's true purpose is to get God to serve you. True faith's true purpose is to get your heart to serve Him. That's the difference between religion and a relationship. Again, as I've mentioned in times in, in weeks past, uh, there, you know, somebody asked me not long ago, with all these religions in the world, how do you know which one's right? There's actually two religions in the whole world. Two. Only two. Two religions in the whole world today. There is a religion that says, do. That has a lot of different names. And there's a religion that says, done. And that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So we understand this. But religion uh, is so harmful to so many people. Now, as we move into chapter 18, uh, it reminds us again, this is a time when Israel had no king. What is going on here is that the tribe of Dan is seeking a place of their own. The Danites are basically a homeless tribe because they have failed in the military obligation they are confined to a hill country, as we see in chapter 1, verse 34. They're forced to live kind of a semi-nomadic existence in the mountains. Now they're in a search for a land that they can settle in. The Danites as a people are a picture of Micah as a person. Uh, they are, they are, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, they, they uh, are uh, f basically a a uh, secluded people because of disobedience to God, which is exactly where Micah's at. But now they're in a search of a land they can settle in. They are noticeably absent. Uh, when you see Revelation 7, 5, and 8, you see a list of all the tribes of Israel that are absent there. They're a picture of the weakest of those who call themselves God's people. They have an idolatrous view of God and a view of His Word. Uh, five men are sent to spy out the land. They uh, and that when they're doing that, they happen onto Micah's house. And they come into Micah, they see what he's done there, and they come, to, oh, you've got a priest. They say to the priest, hey, are we going to be successful? Can you find out from your God whether we're going to be successful or not? And the, the uh, Levite said basically, hey, I don't need to pray. Go with God's blessing. You're going to be just fine. He doesn't even, doesn't even have any record that he actually does go to the Lord about it. So they are assured by a pagan Levite at an idolatrous shrine and they set out to take the land. <coughs> they go. I'm just uh, kind of summarizing this chapter here. Thank you so much. I'm summarizing this chapter, but they come. Uh, they go back. They return with 600 soldiers. 
Now they come back again by Micah's house again. And the five that were there originally say, hey, this is the guy we were telling you about. Now all the soldiers come in and uh, to Micah's house this time and they decide what could be better than to take a religious shrine to the new home that we're going to be at. So the men come in, they take the image, they take the, pre, uh, the, uh, the, uh, they take the image, they take the ephod, they take the idol. The Levite tries to stop them. Hey, hey, you can't do that. These things are holy. They, uh, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit. But they basically spin around. Hey, big boy, you want to stick around with this two-bit operation here? You want to go serve a whole tribe? And the Levite, oh, that's a big decision. I got to pray about it. Okay, I did. Let's go. And uh, he's, you know why? Because he's a hireling. He goes out with who pays the most money. He goes after the one who gives him the best position. That's what hirelings do. Uh, real pastors, real shepherds will follow the principle, follow the Lord's leading. Hirelings will only go after the money. His was a ministry of self-promotion. The Levite really is only serving himself and whoever will pay him the best. You ask the Levite, are you loyal? Absolutely I'm loyal, he'd say. I'm loyal whoever pays me the most. That's how he was loyal. Now, he was motivated by self-promotion. And it's interesting that each move he takes takes him further from the Lord. But in the eyes of the world, he's moving on to successful, impressive things. He began as a Levite, a nobody from Bethlehem, Judah. He ends up in the hill country of Ephraim, became a priest there. Then he ends up in Laish, outside the promised land, working as a priest of a whole tribe. In human, in human terms, he achieved great heights, running the worship for an entire tribe. Yet it was a hollow worship, serving only the God of self-promotion. Back to Micah. Micah's devastated. By the way, how would you feel if you served or worshipped something that could be stolen? Think about it. Dad, I thought we always prayed at the breakfast table. and Normally we do, but God was stolen. Can't pray anymore. Think about it. Worshipping something that was stolen. Uh, you're pretty bad off if you have a God that can be ripped off. Amen? Uh, Micah and his neighbors, they come up and they're ready to fight. I love the response of the Danites in verse number 23. What aileth thee? They basically say, hey, what's your guys' problem? What's your problem? And, and Micah answered, you took my gods and my priests and you asked me what my problem is? Verse 24, he says, what have I more? In other words, what else do I have but that? Everything Micah had could be taken away from him. And he had nothing else. He had built up his religious life. He had added to his shrine an idol, an ephod, and even a Levite priest, but all that he had trusted was gone. And he could not get them back because the Danites were too strong, the Bible says, and so he went home empty-handed. Can I tell you, friend, in the end, self-made religion will always, always disappoint. Whatever we make into our God, whether it be power or money or relationships, it will not deliver one who makes career their God will eventually be defeated by someone who is too strong for them. One who makes money their God will find that it will give them no peace. One who makes fame their God will find in the end that it does not satisfy. The sad thing was that Micah uh, said here, what, what have I more? What a sad statement. Everything he had was wrapped up in his false gods. It's a great reminder to all of us that everyone is a worshiper. It's a bedrock fact of the human condition. All of us have to put our wants and our affections on an object. The problem is that we're often not dis that discerning what that object is. 
Oh, so many people put it in money. I think that's probably the number one God in our world today, money. And yet, look at the lives of those who have it. Does it bring happiness? We see that it does not. We should never follow after something that can be taken away from us. The only question is then, who or what will you look to for ultimate meaning and purpose and blessing? Let me ask you this question, friend. What is that thing that if it was taken away from you today, you would say, I have nothing left. Where in my life do I go now? What else do I have? Like Micah, you took my God. I'm glad I serve a God that can't be taken away from me. Amen? We all serve a God that is more powerful than any of our circumstances. It cannot change my relationship with Him because I'm going through a rough time. Even my sin cannot break off my relationship. It can break off the benefits, of course, and the fellowship, but not the relationship with my God. What a blessing. He's the one of whom we can say with Peter in John 6, 68. It's your memory verse in your bulletin today. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. In Jesus Christ, we find fulfillment. But we only experience it when we finally look to Him and say, Jesus, You are all I want. You are all I need. You are the only thing that I will worship. And that's when we will find that fulfillment. If we know Jesus is ultimately all we have, we discover that He is eternally all we need. Now, so far we haven't been told the name of the Levite. But we come to chapter 18 and verse 30, and it tells us he's Jonathan the son of Gershon. And it's shocking to see that a Levite who compromises on everything except his own interests is a descendant of Moses. It is proof, by the way, that God has no grandchildren. Everyone must come to Christ on their own. I don't know how many people I've talked to that, oh yes, I, uh, I'm a Christian, my dad was a deacon, or my mom was a Sunday school teacher, my dad was a pastor. That, that's great to have that spiritual heritage. That doesn't do beans for you. Every one of us have to come to Christ on a personal basis. And one person put it this way, one generation knows the gospel, the next assumes it, and the third loses it. Uh, it's no better as this seen in Scripture than in Moses' family. Now, these last chapters, or these two chapters here that we just had, gives us a great example of the results of evil. Because, listen carefully, sin does not only make people incredibly wicked and violent. Now, we'll see that in the next story. But sin can also make us look good on the outside, in our own eyes. Remember, that's what's going on in the book of Judges. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. These men, supposedly, Micah, supposedly wanted to do what was right. And he was doing what was right in his own eyes. But can I remind you, friend, that God does not judge you by your standard. God judges you by his standard. And his standard is found in that book right there. That means we cannot take an exacto knife and cut out parts of it that we don't like. Because he's going to judge us according to that, whether we accepted it or not. This is a sobering thought. And that's what's wrong today in our land, in our society. People deciding what is right. People deciding that it's acceptable to murder a baby in the womb and hold a candle for a cold-blooded murderer on death row. People deciding that it's alright to throw marriage as we know it out the window. People deciding that it's alright to kick God out of public institutions. And this is all in the name of good. 
is the name of tolerance, in the name of acceptance, and uh, in the name of diversity and inclusion. In the meantime, God is being vastly dishonored. And we as a people become more and more miserable. Here you have in this time in Judges, a, a, and it's not wickedness like we'll see in the next chapter. You have religion. But can I tell you, friend, that got them no closer to God than, than awful, awful wickedness does in the next story. Because religion does not bridge that gap. Religion does not get you... Religion is all about you doing and doing and doing and doing to try to reach God. And the Bible says, for there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says, all have come short. All have sinned and all have come short of the glory of God. I like that. That's Romans chapter 3. I like the, the, the kind of visual I get from that come short. Um, Brother John and I were fishing last week and uh, at Lake Herman. And it's a pretty wide lake. But just imagine that, that him and I got the brilliant idea. We wanted to jump over the lake. The lake, Herman. Okay, it's a big lake. We're going to jump over it. And we just got, we, we got back and we got a big running start. We come to the edge and we jump as far as we can. We're going to jump over this lake. Now, we're not going to get over the lake. Amen? We all understand. That's coming short. We're not going to... No matter... Hey, he might get further than me. I'd probably get further than him. But uh, he, one of us might get further than him. But neither one of us is going to make it over the, over the lake. You understand? That's the idea of come short. All have sinned. All have come short. We might... And, we, and here's the ridiculous thing. While I'm standing in the lake, hip deep in water, I'm ha ha! I made it further than you! I still didn't get across the lake. And we do that in our religion. We think I'm better than you are, but you're still not there. You're still not going to make it. You're still going to come short. And that's what religion does. We start to compare ourselves with other people and we look at others and we think we're okay because we're comparing ourselves to somebody else that's worse than us. And the Bible says everyone is wicked. Everyone will fall short. There's only one thing that will bridge that gap and that is the, uh, that is, that's what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. He says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That is what we earn. That's the only thing we can earn is death. But that gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is, uh, he, he, he shows us that we earn our death, but we cannot earn heaven. It doesn't matter how many good works you do. It doesn't matter how long you serve and, and how much you uh, deny yourself. You cannot uh, earn the... Your good will never outdo your bad because this is not a behavioral issue. That's how we look at our sin. We look at it as behaviorally. So I'll do some good to offset the bad. That's as crazy as making saying, I've got cancer, but I'll do good so that my cancer will be beat. Cancer is not a behavioral issue. It's a condition. That's what our sin is. It's a condition. And we can't do anything about it ourselves. And he took care of it on the cross of Calvary. And then he offers it as a gift. You say, well, what do I do? Romans 10.13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord for that. But Micah did what so many of us did or do and he wanted to create his own religion. This got them no closer to God than those in Sodom and Gomorrah. Sin tends to make us hollow. We look good on the outside but we're driven by the desire for power and gain. We see that in this story Micah stole from his mother. The Levite betrayed Micah to get ahead and the Danites abused Micah. It shows us the destructive life, uh, the, the destructive nature of living life by our own rules. The book of Judges is a sobering depiction of the human condition. 
it ultimately points us all to the need of God's grace. Because Judges is no different than you or I without Christ. If we started to live doing our own uh, thing and doing what was right in our own eyes, we would progressively, progressively get worse. The reason is because as we look at others, we always accept more deficiency in ourselves. And so it progressively would get worse and worse without the Lord in our life. We see all through the book that Israel needed deliverance from their enemies. And I think this is an interesting point. As I was wrapping up the book of Judges in my own personal study, you have the whole book of Judges, deliver us from our enemies. And then it's like God sends a crystal clear message to Israel. You need deliverance from yourself. You don't need deliverance from your enemies. You need deliverance from yourself. Your wickedness. And that's what they needed so desperately. So many of us need the same thing in our lives too. What about you today? If we look closely into our hearts, and I ask you to do so every time we preach, and every time we have an altar call, and the music plays, look closely into your own heart, and I wager that you will find areas we build our own shrines. We might have given our heart to God, and we might have asked Him to be our Savior, but and then we have these little shrines. It's like cleaning house for company. You don't clean every room. You only clean the rooms they're going to be setting in. You got the closets up there, and you got under the bed, and you got different areas that we got some junk crammed into. We do that with our life too. We have areas that, you know, Lord, I'll, I'll give you this. Don't, don't go in that side room over there. We have our own little shrine set up. How about giving that over to the Lord today? Instead of having God's supreme rule over our hearts and lives, we replace Him with a better version. And in so doing, we lose what we have. That's the story of rent a priest. Don't be guilty of it. Let's every head, every head bowed, every eye closed. We talked about a lot today, and I don't want to narrow it down to any specific thing, but has God spoke to your heart this morning, friend? Are you here today and you don't know that you know that you know you'd be in heaven? That's the first question I have for you. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's going to embarrass you.